repent. But God, who exists outside of time, he can look through the corridors of time and he knows what's going to happen. And he can still be genuine in his offers, but he knows that man is not going to respond. But that doesn't take away the insincerity of what God is calling the nation of Israel to do. He's asking them to seek me. He's pleading with them. He's commanding them. And he's commanding them. He wants them to live. He wants them to choose life. But the prophet also knows that God sees the beginning to the end. And he knows that captivity is imminent. And he knows that that's what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. About 10 years after this prophecy, the king of Assyria... His name was Tiglath-Pileser. I always liked that name. It's kind of got a catchy ring to it. I wanted to name one of my kids that. <laughs> Come here, Tiglath. <laughs> but uh, in First Kings, we find where he took the majority of Israel into captivity. And yet, God preserved the city of Samaria. And so, the king of Assyria set up another king. He deposed the king of Israel and set up another king. His name was Pekiah. And he decided he didn't want to follow the rules either that the Assyrians were playing by. And so, the Assyrians removed him and they set up another king, Pekah. And he lasted for about 11 years, but he didn't like paying taxes to the Assyrian Empire. And he said, you know, it didn't work so well for my predecessor, so I'm going to make a covenant. I'm going to make an agreement with Pharaoh. And between the two of us, we can certainly expel the Assyrian oppression. Well, Shalmaneser, who's now the ruler of the Assyrian Empire, he gets wind of it. And it took him three years to finally crush the entire northern empire. In 722 B.C., Israel is no more. They're gone. And yet God was hoping that a remnant, just a remnant might be saved. So he sends Amos the prophet. I've read this book back and forth, and only in chapter 5 do you find any reprieve or any hope. And their only hope is to seek the Lord. But it had gotten so bad in Israel that God actually hated and despised their church services. He says, you go up to Gilgal and you multiply your transgressions. You go to Bethel, the place of worship, and you are actually making things worse for yourselves. So this morning we're going to look at what is the heart of worship? What kind of worship is it that pleases God? We can see here that God despised, that God hated this type of worship. And you don't have to be a, a Bible scholar to figure out what God really enjoys. What is it that God desires? If I asked any one of you who knows Jesus, you know the answer to that question. 
God wants simply a pure heart. God wants sincerity. He hates hypocrisy. God wants our heart in our worship. That's, that's as simple as I, it can be, isn't it? And you don't have to, to dig too deep into this passage. You do have to know a little bit of the history, but other than that, we, we know that, that it had gotten to the point where God said, enough, take away your worship songs. You're just making things worse for yourself. It's like a husband when he tramples all over his wife's new white rugs with his muddy hunting boots, and he brings in the hunting dog, and it jumps up on the bed and wallows around on it. And, and then he goes out to the store, and he buys a bouquet of roses. And she says, get those things away from me. I'm not going to smell your roses. And Tracy's grinning over here because... <laughs> Because we have company coming, and she spent the better part of yesterday vacuuming and dusting and cleaning. And she comes down this morning, and her spiritual husband is sitting there with his Bible and his mangy dog sitting there on the floor next to him. She says, get that thing out of here. So I thought, what can I do to appease her? I don't think I could have done anything. She would have despised it. She would have hated it. You're insincere. I don't believe you. I don't want to smell your flowers. So, you know what? I decided I'm not going to buy her any flowers anyway. <laughs> so, but this is where Israel had gotten. Worship is so important, uh, such an important part of the Christian life. And yet it's one of the things that, that we neglect so much. You know, I love just going over to Hey Google on Sunday mornings. And this morning I went over and I asked her, Siri or whoever she is in that side of that little box, if you could just play for me How Beautiful by Keith Green. And then when she got done with that one, I asked her to play one by Fernando Ortega. I will sing of my Redeemer. There's something about worship that God enjoys and that we feel close to God. And so what is it the worship that God enjoys? What is it that we feel edified, that we build each other up in? Uh, I remember when I was a, a young Christian, somebody gave me a disciple book. And there was a wheel, and it had three spokes. And one of them was Bible study. The other spoke was witnessing, sharing your faith. And the third one was worshiping God. And I never really got that one, worshiping God. Worshiping in America has become really sort of a perverse thing in a lot of churches. I talked to a couple yesterday who's so discouraged by their church worship that by the time the preaching comes, they're already so put off that they don't want to stay. I remember being in a church where the worship would start and I would leave and I would go out into the hallway. They met in a school and as soon as the worship was done, I would come back in for the preaching. But I hunger for worship and I praise God for Caleb and what he's doing and what he brings to our worship. 
And I, and I know you feel the same way because you're connecting with God. There's something intimate that's real. And I think worship can be really summed up in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And I think that's what makes worship difficult, is because those three components have to be working in harmony. And we get out of balance, because sometimes we just emphasize the soul. And it's all about feeling. It's all about emotion. Sometimes all we do is we emphasize the mind. And it's just dead orthodoxy. It's just mouthing words that are doctrinally correct, but there's no heart, there's no emotion, there's no feeling. And so worship is not an easy thing to do. It is an outward expression in the Old Testament. And God required all of these things. He required the feast days, the festivals. He required burnt offerings. He required the incense. God required that they wash their hands before they went into the tabernacle. But all of those things were merely an outward expression of an inward reality telling us about the character of God. I cannot approach God without sacrifice. I cannot approach God without cleansing. I can't approach God without understanding his character in the Passover festival or in the Feast of Weeks or in the Feast of Tabernacles, God's faithfulness in the wilderness. So all of those things were commanded, but yet God was looking for something much deeper than walking through the motions. By the time that Jesus gets on the scene, worship had so degraded itself that it was all about the exterior. And they forgot who they were actually worshiping. They were worshiping their set of rules and all their rituals. Jesus goes through the cornfields, or probably the grain fields, the wheat. I don't think they had corn over there. But he's picking the grain with his hands. And the Pharisees are so upset that he has dirtied his hands. What about his heart? What about the disciples' need for food? And it was a Sabbath day. So they're working and they're dirtying their hands. And Jesus came back and he said, Well, hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. I YouTubed a guy this week because I, I respect him in a lot of ways, and he was speaking on worship, and after about 30 seconds, I clicked him off, and I was disappointed because to him, worship was all about the external. He was talking about how you can't worship coming just in your average clothes, you've got to put on your, your Sunday best. And, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. But that is not the heart of worship. I would rather you came in with a wrinkled shirt and have a heart that's straight. I'll, I'll never forget the, the independent fundamental church that I first pastored. I could be 
in a dogfight with my wife, and I could be you know, scolding the kids and, and losing my temper, but I had better walk into that church with the right Bible and a tie and a suit, and I remember standing at the ironing board, fuming, getting all the wrinkles out of that stupid shirt, and walking through the door, well, hello, Pastor Pat, how are you today? Oh, I'm great. What a lie. <laughs> and I did not worship God. I got through it. I endured it. And God was enduring their worship. That's all he was doing. You can give your tithe of mint and anise and cumin and omit the weightier the heavy, the real essence of the law. And the real essence of the law was this. It was judgment. It was mercy. It was faith. They were straining at gnats and swallowing camels. Now, again, that takes a little bit of background knowledge, but you get that gist of it, don't you? You know a gnat's just this little tiny thing? And you know a camel's a great big old animal? I sound like um, our vice president up here, don't I? A little, little teeny creature, and there's a big one. <laughs> okay, let's get, get a hold of myself. Okay. I didn't have tea. I don't know what's wrong, Rick. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Okay. So in the dietary law, there were unclean animals, and there were clean animals. And the gnat was an unclean animal, and so was a camel. And Jesus, he's got a good sense of humor, doesn't he? He says, you guys are putting your drink through a strain, making sure you catch that little gnat, and then you're going home and having camel burgers. That's part of what he was saying. He says, you've got it all wrong. God has always desired simple obedience, sincerity, and humility in worship. Listen to the words of Micah. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord? How will I bow myself before the Most High God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With the calves of a year old, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Or will 10,000 rivers of oil please him? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown thee, O man, what the Lord doth require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. That's what our Lord desires. Throughout church history, we've observed really two extremes in worship, from dead formalism to what we see in America, and I label it as worldly carnalism or carnivalism. What does God delight in? What does God desire how can we offer worship that pleases him and brings us into his presence and builds up one another? Well, Amos gives us a hint at what was missing and also what was needed. The first thing that we'll look at in this first paragraph, and we won't go into it very deeply, but we see that, that punishment for the nation of Israel was inevitable. The Lord... That's his covenant name of the personal God. And then we have Elohim Sabaoth, which is God, the powerful God, the God of all the angelic armies of heaven. 
And then we have the word Lord, and notice that it's Lord with capital L, lowercase o-r-d. That's the Hebrew word Adonai, which means master. So we have this invocation by God with all of his names, the covenant God that the Jews would not even pronounce. If you phonetically put it, it comes out to like Yehovah or Yahweh. But that was a word that was so sacred that the Jews wouldn't even pronounce it. And then you have Elohim, which is the strong one, the mighty one, and it's a plural of excellence. And then you have the genitive phrase describing how powerful he is of all the armies. And then he is Adonai, he's master. And this is what he says. The devastation is going to be complete. Notice that the word all is given us three times. There shall be wailing in all streets. They shall say in all the highways. And then in verse 17, in all the vineyards. So God's punishment on Israel was going to be inescapable and undiminished. It was going everywhere. It was going to be all of them. There was going to be a second type of a Passover. Notice the end of verse 17. Why was this going to happen? Well, we, we see that they're, they're going to, the, the farmer, the one who's going to bring the grain, they're going to hire people who are professional whalers because it's going to be like a funeral. You remember when Jesus went into the house of the little girl and they were wailing and crying out? That's where this originated from in the Old Testament where they would hire people for a funeral to wail and to go through these dirges. And, and this is how bad it's going to be for Israel. And it says, for I will pass through you. That's reminiscent of the Exodus period, isn't it? Where God said, I am going to pass through the land this night. But God is equating the people of Israel as the, if they were the Egyptians. So this punishment is inevitable. And then we look at 18 through 20, and we see wrong theology working itself out into wrong praxis. Bad theology will corrupt the way we come to God. It leads to wrong application. They thought the day of the Lord was going to be their rescue. They thought the day of the Lord was going to be the time where God brings them about as a kingdom. That's not the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day of wrath. It's a time of Jacob's trouble. And the day of the Lord that we are now looking forward to is not going to be a day that people are going to relish. And so they have a wrong theology leading to a wrong application. The purpose of the day of the Lord is wrath. The purpose of the day of the Lord is to punish. It's that when the day of the Lord arrives, it means that hope is gone. The captivity of Assyria is right around the corner. It is close. It's nigh at the doors. And the nation of Israel was walking completely oblivious to it. So let's look at the worship that God desires. The first thing that we see here is a repetition in verse 21. I hate, I despise. This is for emphasis. God is using the strongest combination of words to make his point across. 
that it is disfavorable, distasteful, and it's disgusting. The strongest combination, I hate, I despise. Now I want you to notice the personal pronoun. Your feast days. I do not savor your sacred assemblies. They were man-instituted because God did not authorize any of these. These were totally man-made. You might say that these were originated from human invention rather than divine revelation. So the first thing that we see here, that the worship that God desires is from divine revelation, not from human ingenuity or human strategies. I've gone to conferences and I've heard all these different lectures on how to get your church to grow. And one of the things that they talk about is this touchy, feely, emotional worship that appeals to your senses, that draws people in from the world, that makes them feel comfortable. People ought to walk in here in a church that is a place of worship, and they ought to feel a foreigner. They ought to confess that God is in this place and I need the Savior when they walk into worship. And so he says, I hate them. Now, God had instituted three annual feasts for the nation of Israel. And yet he said, I hate the feast that you're doing. They had the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. But if you remember our history lesson from last week, Jeroboam I set aside all of those feasts, and he came up with his own feast calendars to rival the ones that God had instituted. Not only had he done that, he had replaced the Levitical priesthood. The way that we approach God is through a holy high priest alone. Now, we don't go through priests in the New Testament, do we? Because Jesus Christ is our high priest, but we dare not think that God can be approached any other way than through our Savior. We don't come to him in our goodness. We don't come to him in our works. All of that is filth. The other thing that they had done in Samaria is that they had made two golden calves. And so God says, you can do all the worship you want, but I despise it. God hates worship without contrition. He says, I will not accept them, nor will I regard them. Verse 22, in spite of you offering me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard the feast of your peace offerings. The peace offerings were to represent that you and God were one that that alienation between God had been appeased. It had been covered by the blood. Christ is the covering for our blood, uh, the blood that covers our sin. But when we come to God without a contrite heart, God does not accept or regard external worship, external worship without the heart. When I was reading this verse, 
brought me to, to, to um, the incident of David. When David realized that his sin was so grave, and, and I think David sincerely wanted to deal with that sin, and he said, God, if, if an animal was what you required, I, I would have brought it. But God, you require something more than just a sacrifice. And David penned these words when he was so under conviction. He says, O Lord, open my mouth. You, O Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth, and I shall show forth thy praise. God, get this burden off of me. For you desired not sacrifices or else I would give it. If thou delightest in burnt offerings, I would have brought them. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with the burnt offerings and the whole burnt offerings, and they shall offer bullocks upon thine altar. That's when God is pleased. He doesn't want us to go through the motion. He wants us to have contrition. He wants us to have sincerity. And thirdly, God hates worship with impure motives. There must be a change of heart. Ingenuous worship to God is nothing more than noise. 23 and 24, particularly 23. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. There must be a change of heart. Ingenuous worship is nothing but clatter and a symbol that means nothing to God without love. God listens to the heart. Listen to the words of Isaiah, very similar to the words of Amos. Amos was to the northern kingdom, and Judah was on a fast track to repeat what happened to northern Israel by the time Isaiah the prophet came along. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of burnt offerings of rams. The fat of beasts I delight not in. The blood of bullocks and of rams and of goats. When you come to appear before me, who's required this at your hand to tread my cords? Bring to me no more vain oblations. Incense, it's an abomination to me. Your new moons and your solemn assemblies, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. That word to bear, God says, I carry this on my shoulder and I can't put up with it any longer. So how is this going to be averted? We see a little bit of a remedy in verse 23 again. In verse 24, the word but gives us the solution. What was Israel's life during this period. Well, the gates of the city was supposed to be a place where you could get justice dealt for you. And they were coming to the gates, and the poor, the widows, and the orphans were coming to the gates, and they were being exploited. And then they were going into their places of worship to worship God. And so God says, this is, this is about the last-ditch effort to get you on the right track for right worship. And so God says, two things that I want you to do. Justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat, which means to judge right. And the other word is siddiq, righteous, which means living before God with an open heart, being justified by faith. 
That's what those two words mean. So judgment has to do with our treatment to other people. And God says, I want it to roll down. And then he gives a comparison of how it's to roll down. It's to roll down like water. It's to cover. It's to permeate everything. I want you to have sincere treatment to one another. You want to worship me? Then you be right with one another. And you want to worship me? Then you be right vertically with God. Let righteousness roll down like a mighty stream. The word for mighty is the Hebrew word that means ongoing or pervasive. The word for stream is a wadi or a intermittent stream. And if you live in a desert, as we do, and you go down into the canyon lands, you can observe a lot of those, what they call a wadi, and they are a dry riverbed. And during the rain season or during the snow runoff, those things are a torrent. But as soon as everything gets dry, that stream bed is just dry as dust. And that's the word that Amos is using here, but he's using another word that was used during the month of the rain season. And what God is saying, I don't want intermittent righteousness. I don't want it hit and miss. I want this to be the prevailing attitude of your heart, that you are walking with me. For God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say that we are walking with God and we are walking in darkness, we lie and we do not the truth. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and his truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what God is desiring is that when we do fall, that we are quick to ask his cleansing. That's what he's requiring. That's the kind of worship that God wants. Don't go through your week and expect to come in on Sunday morning and to have a wonderful spirit-filled worship if you've not been walking with God throughout the week and confessing your sins throughout the week. Now, that mean don't come because you can always get it right, right with the Lord. That's how good our God is. But God said, this is, what, this is what I want you to do. I want to mend your ways. I want you to have right relationships with each other and I want you to have a right relationship with me. So I'm going to quickly run through four New Testament passages. And I want you to, to, to turn with me, or you can just listen. If you're not quick at turning, that's fine. But the first place I want us to go to is John's Gospel, chapter 4, starting with verse 22. And we're not going to go to in deep depth with these. We're not going to do a deep study of them this morning. I just want us to see it today so that our worship is rich, so that our worship pleases God, that our worship edifies one another, and that the Lord won't say to us at North Valley, I despise your worship. So John chapter 4, verse 22, we'll start our reading there. Notice what Jesus says. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. You worship what you do not know. We know 
what we worship. So the first thing we got to start with is intellectual integrity. We have to know the character of God. We've got to understand God's holiness. We've got to understand God's justice. We've got to understand God's mercy. We've got to understand God's grace. We have to know what we're worshiping. Worship becomes real. Worship becomes alive when we know what we are worshiping. The object of our worship, the cross of Jesus Christ, where God displayed his displeasure with sin, and God showed his complete satisfaction, poured out his wrath upon the Son of God, and that we can be completely righteous before him, and we know what we worship. So worship begins with intellectual integrity. Let's keep reading. For salvation, it is sourced in the Jewish people. The promise to Abraham, a seed was going to come. But the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers, so there are untrue worshipers, and there are true worshipers, and the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now, the translators did not capitalize S there. And I think they're correct. It's hard to tell in the Greek. It's just it's the Greek word pneuma. But the translators, I believe, translated it correctly with a small s. Because God wants us to worship from our inner core. Not just knowing what we're worshiping. It must come from the human heart. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians. He says, when we sing, we sing with our spirit and we sing with our understanding. God wants the combination. And Jesus is saying there, worship is with the human soul. And then the other side of the coin is truth. We must worship God in truth. Truth is that which conforms to God's revelation. You and I cannot worship God contrary to the word of God. So this is worship that God desires. I know we're not going to go over it very deep, so let's jump over to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, it's the Greek word logic, and service is liturgy, and some translations say this is your rational form of worship, bringing ourselves as living sacrifices, holy, and do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the ruining, renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So I've got to worship God in spirit and in truth, and I've got to worship God in personal holiness. Personal holiness recognizes that God's Mercy, in view of his mercy, the only reasonable thing to do is to worship God. 
personal sacrifice is offering ourselves and not things. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We often quote that. But there's a context to that. God doesn't want all the animals. All the trees of Lebanon are not sufficient. I'm glad that this is a giving church and that our offerings are such a blessing and that God is using this church as an example of what a small group of people can do through our sacrificial giving. But all that said, God would rather us come and put in our single widow's might, if that's all we have, to worship God and understand who he is and what he has done for us in view of his mercies. What God really wants is you. Because when he gets you, he gets the rest of you. And then giving is an outflow of having your heart. The third thing we see in this passage is that personal holiness does not conform to the world, but it's transformed by the power of God's word. So this is what God accepts. He accepts spirit and truth worship. He accepts holy, sanctified people in their worship. The third thing that I want us to notice is that our worship must be Christ-centered. It must be Christ-centered. Those songs that we sang this morning, they were all centered in Christ, weren't they? That, when Caleb plays that song at the baptisms, boy, I, I can barely hold back the tears. I, I've got him on video, and every, every about once a month, I'll just go back and just listen to that song and watch those people being baptized. It, it's such a blessing because it's all about Jesus. Every New Testament ordinance that the church is commanded to keep, it's all Christ-centered. The Lord's Supper and baptism, it's all about Jesus. Turn to Colossians chapter 2, 16 and 17. Right after the book of Philippians. Colossians chapter 2, 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival. That's what Amos was talking about. Or a new moons or Sabbaths. All of these things are a shadow of things to come. The New King James says, but the substance, literally the Greek word there is stomos, which is body. The body, the real person of all of those things. Every one of those Old Testament representatives was all about Jesus. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus gave us the first endowment of the first fruits on the day of Pentecost. Jesus is the one who supplies, and he's the one who guides us through the wilderness. The Sabbath is a picture of rest, and Jesus has come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you the Sabbath rest. And when God rested, he continues to rest, and we enter into that rest when we enter into Jesus. And so our worship must be Christ-centered. One more passage, and then we'll be done this morning. 
our worship must be spirit-filled. And a lot have taken this and have missed it and twisted it. So let's look at exactly what it... So let's flip back to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, because we're going to see something interesting about what spirit-filled worship looks like. 5.18, Ephesians 5.18. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. That means you are out of control. Don't be out of control. One of the marks of the Holy Spirit, and this has been so perverted in American Christianity, that somehow the Holy Spirit will bring you into this, this strange experience that's not anywhere found in the Bible where people are out of control, not realizing what they're saying, without discipline, and nothing could be further from the truth. That's what it means to be under the influence. And we are to be under the influence of the Spirit. One of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is temperance or self-control. So Spirit-filled worship first is marked by self-control, and it manifests itself in the fruit of the Spirit. You want to know if you are filled with the Spirit. Don't look to some kind of experience, although those are legitimate and you can have an experience with God. I'm not downplaying that. Don't get me wrong. Because God is a person, and we have an experience with God. There's an emotion because God has personality, and we are made in His image, and we're created in His likeness. But if you really want to know what it means to be Spirit-filled, go to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. And if those things are in your life, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, temperance, self-control, if these things be in you, you will not break God's laws. That's what it means. And so Spirit-filled worship means we're under the controlling agent of God's Spirit. Spirit-filled worship is to focus on one another, and it deflects attention from yourself. That's Spirit-filled worship. We speak to one another. We're concerned about edifying the body of Christ when we're Spirit-filled, and it deflects recognition to you. You remember what Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes? He will not speak about himself, but he will speak to you about Christ. Another thing that we see about spirit-filled worship is it is doctrinally correct. They speak to one another in hymns. Well, first of all, he says psalms. So we know it's doctrinally correct because the psalms were written by the Holy Spirit. I was just reading... A couple nights ago, my wife and I were reading in bed and going through what Jesus was teaching about David's writing. And he says, David in the spirit wrote, my Lord said to his Lord, make his enemies his footstool. And the guys that he was discussing couldn't answer the question. But I noted to Tracy, I says, look at right here. We have a verse teaching the inspiration 
of Scripture. David said it, and David wrote it, but Jesus quotes it and says, the Spirit spoke and said this. So when we worship God, it needs to be doctrinally correct. Then he said hymns. Hymns were something that was already being written by the early New Testament church. Did you realize that? In fact, we have hymns written all over the New Testament. And they were doctrinal creeds that all the apostles agreed with. I'll give you just two of them. One of them is found in 1 Timothy 1.17. It's a hymn. And that's what we're to speak to one another Why? It says, now unto the king eternal, doctrinally correct, immortal, he's not flesh, invisible, the only wise God. You hear that doctrine? And that was what was in their hymns. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then we have another one in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 3.16. It's always easy for me to remember this one. God appeared in the flesh. That is doctrinal truth, isn't it? 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14, and the Word became flesh and lived among us. Tabernacle, put his tent among us, lived among us. God appeared in the flesh. That was in their hymns. He was justified in the Spirit. Jesus was raised by the Holy Spirit, saying that his sacrifice was accepted. He was then seen by angels. He was preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. That's one of their hymns. And then the other element is spiritual or spirit-filled singing. Seek God and live. Actively, passionately, consistently enter into fellowship with God. I trust and I pray that that is your testimony this week. Don't come to church and listen to me teach because I'm not a good teacher anyway. But besides that, okay, that's false humility. Repent. Thank you, Lord. All right, where was I? Whew. Getting hot. <laughs> Stand up here preaching and you sin. Boy, that's... Okay. All right. Um, I don't know where I was at. Yes. Actively, passionately, consistently enter into fellowship with God. That's what he wants from every one of us, doesn't he? When that happens, the overflow that will be our worship is what pleases God. It's just an overflow, isn't it? It's an overflow of knowing and understanding and walking with God. So let's summarize. What is it that God desires? He desires sincerity he desires contrition. He wants us to be motivated by love. He wants a heart that is yielded to truth, holiness that does not conform to the world, but it's transformed, worship that is Christ-centered, and worship that is spirit-filled, led, controlled, that focuses on the nature and the character of God and on one another rather than self. That's what God desires. And I know we've got one song left to sing, but if I could just indulge our worship team, and if you could sing 
Oh, praise the name of Jesus. And then sing the heart of worship. And I want us just to enjoy. We've read it. We've studied it. Now we get the opportunity to practice it. Let your heart this morning commune with the heart of God and just sense the richness of it. Appreciate God and what he's done. So if our worship team will come back and, and play for us.